0: Hello, this is Sam Leith. I'm afraid the book club is taking a brief Christmas break, so in the meantime, I very much hope that you enjoyed this from our archives and join us again in January. Happy Christmas. Hello and welcome to the Spectator Books podcast. I'm Sam Leith, literary editor of The Spectator. And this week I'm joined by the comedian and writer Robert Webb, whose new book is called How Not To Be A Boy and has already caused all sorts of trouble with men's rights activists and (laughs) angry men online because it says that being a boy in the traditional way is not a good thing. Rob, you talk about recovering from masculinity in the book. What do you mean by that? Well, sort of. I
1: mean, I found it, you know, the way the book works is that I sort of speak for myself, And but there again, I think it's probably not just me. I'm sort of out to ring bells. I found all the stuff that I was supposed to be good at when I was a boy, you know, running and jumping and swimming and maths and football and science and, and being uh, boisterous and cajoling and cheeky, whereas I was almost completely mute. I couldn't really do any of this stuff, and I found it quite a tight fit. I never had a problem with my sex assignment. I didn't want to be a girl. In fact, I talk in the book about, you know, if there's one rule I understood, it was the the paramount objective of despising girls as well as the, the sovereign importance of early homophobia. I could understand these rules, but the rest of it, I, I didn't really know what I was doing. When I say, you know, masculinity, you know, gender is something to recover from, I don't think that being male is some kind of innately fallen state. I think men can be terrific. But the, when I think about the men that I admire in my personal life, my friends, uh, and what I like about them, was sort of talking about the the gentle dads and the reliable partners and the guys that you catch in, you know, acts of random kindness when they're not expecting anyone to notice. And these, to me, are the adults, the ones who've outgrown gender. You know, it's sort of the opposite of the kind of behaviour you see on The Apprentice. Yeah. Uh, you, know, <laughs> the, you know, the need to dominate other people, the massive obsession with Competition instead of collaboration, the weaselly interest in hierarchy, all you know—the idea that inflexibility is a virtue—all that stuff, I think, gets in our own way, and indeed in the way of other people, namely women.
0: One of the things that's very sort of striking about the book is it's a—I mean, it's primarily really. I mean, you know, you look from the cover almost, you'd think this is going to be an essay, it's going to be a kind of polemic, but it's much more like a memoir.
1: Oh, it is a memoir, I mean, yes.
0: Yeah. But it's got this sort of filter. I mean, almost as if you see gender requirements as having been really central to the things that went through your life in terms of I mean it's very trouble it's a very sad book mm. a lot of it and a lot of your troubles I mean, do you do you think that really the difficulties you've had have been your personal difficulties have been gender expectation based it really wasn't hard to well I mean
1: I say it wasn't hard it was you know it took me two years to write it on and off but but looking at my life through that prism through through the focus of sort of a, a gender conditioning and and the performance of being a boy and the performance of being a man. It really, all the sort of significant events um, uh, really do relate to that topic. And, uh, you know, I I thought I had a good story to tell, a sort of mixture of the unusual and the typical. I mean, worse things happen to people all the time but it's a bit unusual to lose your mum when you're a teenager what I do for a living is a bit unusual but there again there's lots of teen angst about you know being getting very very cross with these girls who wouldn't get off with me because they lacked the basic imagination to see that I was a marvelous guy and you know I was keeping a diary at the time and um, and uh, suddenly I was <laughs> there was a lot of material to choose from so that's entirely normal yeah,
0: um, it's very self exposing i mean, but but you you do Publish some of these diary entries that just kind of make you wince with horror. (laughs) Well, yes, because I
1: get to I get to sort of comment on them as well. So, so you know, I can have my cake and eat it there because we get all the embarrassment of how I wrote then, and hopefully the enjoyment of what I think to what I think about that young man's attitude. You stop short
0: of the poetry, though.
1: I do in the print book. I'm sorry to say that in the audio book, a couple of poems are available (laughs) as as extras because basically, I because I trusted myself to perform them with suitably undermining uh, (laughs) uh, delivery, but to See them written down. I wasn't going to have that. Also you need extras for the you know Exactly, you've got to have extras.
0: I mean, one of the sort of things in the book that very striking is you you have these two three very sort of trad masculine images. You know, you talk to your father as sort of you know, I mean he's essentially kind of quite violent. Mm. He's obviously, if not an alcoholic, something very close to it. Mm -hmm. And you've got two rather older brothers who are you know real Boys. Boys, boys. Yeah, Yeah, boys, boys. um, Um, So why do you think you turned out, as it were, such a girly boy? (laughs) (laughs) Such a mummy's boy. Yeah.
1: Well, Dad was, I, I don't think he was doing anything particularly unusual for his time and place. I mean, he scared the living daylights out of me and he did punish his boys physically. He was on a bit of a short fuse. He drank a fair bit. But there again, you know, the context is... Working class, you know, I didn't always sound like this, by the way. I, you know, I've been doing an impression of a middle-class person since I was sort of 15. But, you know, I'm from Lincolnshire and, um, you know, this is the 70s, you know, where there, you still had corporal punishment in primary schools. You know, a teacher could still come at a nine-year-old with a stick and that was considered <laughs> completely normal. So I don't think that wasn't really doing anything terribly unusual. But anyway, my mother had had enough of it by the time I was five and she divorced him. And So his influence... From then on, I, I kind of saw him, Christmases and birthdays when he sort of backed himself to be nice, and he was nice. And also in the book, I hopefully I, I redeem him to some extent. You know, he there were lots of things to admire about him, and I, I hope as a as a whole I'm I'm fair to him. But I certainly couldn't have written it while he was still around. He died in 2013. That it would have been just cruel, really. But I hope, hopefully it's a, it's a generous book for the sake of being generous. Anyway. Were your
0: brothers afraid of your father in the way that you were, do you think? And I Do you have a sense of that? I doubt
1: it because they were five, respectively five and six years older than me. So yes, they knew they were in for a hard time if they stepped out of line. But I think for them it was less random. And that was what was terrifying to me. I didn't know what the rules were. I never really... It was never quite explained to me why this was happening. So that's the terror of it. It's it's not really the how much it hurts being hit on the bottom. It's the not knowing... You know, just having this deeply unpredictable presence in the house. That was the frightening bit. And I think for Mark and Andrew, it was, it was less scary because they were that much older and they could... They could get it right.
0: I mean, obviously, they're they're still with us. How did Mm. how did you consult them a lot when you were writing this book? How did they certainly
1: did? Yeah, all the significant living people in the book were sent uh, an early copy, uh, an early draft, and um, they've all been very supportive. I mean, I say in the book, no one with any sense enjoys being written about because you know you're taking a contradictory and complicated human being and turning them into a character, you know most characters you can only really afford to have two or three things about them, I probably, maybe, I've probably given myself four things I'm in the book quite a lot but I, I've probably got me wrong so I'm bound to have got them wrong as well so it, nobody enjoys it but um, they've been very supportive and generous and I've got a double thumbs up from all of them.
0: I mean you, you just there's a piece only in the book where you have your I think one of you, you ask your brother about what you were like when you are little and you, you're surprised to hear him say you were spoiled.
1: Yes Spoil is the first one that, that springs to mind spr- that sprang to Mark's mind and he you know he had a point because you know I was that much younger. Frankly, I was gorgeous. you know I had this white blonde curly hair I was doted on. You say that it was a masculine household, actually you know post dad. I was kind of brought up by women. That was my mother, my grandmother and my great auntie Trudy, and they all worked in a kitchen in the uh, local golf club. And, you know, they would cut the crust off my sandwiches and they would take the pips out of grapes. Remember remember pips in grapes, kids? Yes. <laughs> and, um, yeah, I was, I was really looked after. I think I probably was spoiled.
0: And was that, do you think, kind of a reaction to the fact that, you know, you say in the book, you're very conscious of not milking it, that you, there was another child who died? Yes. And that you were kind of... Yes.
1: Yeah, my oldest brother, Martin, died of meningitis, sadly, when he was six. And I came along ten months later. And I, you know, I'd done the maths (laughs) at some point. I think one of the last conversations I had with my mum was that she said, you know, you came along quite soon after Martin died. And I think that's why we've always been
0: close. And I think that's probably true. One of the sort of things you're quite strong on in the book is this idea that these gender roles you talk about are basically completely socially constructed. Mm. I mean, is that established to your satisfaction kind of beyond doubt because i mean it seems to me those,
1: no, you know, no it's not i mean i i'm you know i'm at pains to point out that i'm not uh, a scientist but i do cite a couple of books in this book namely pink brain blue brain by Lee elliott and delusions of gender by cordelia fine the problem with this stuff is there is no control experiment there is no child that can be brought up separated from a society so you know we don't really know and of course i'm I'm not claiming for a second that, you know, I I do understand that there are, you know, we have different contributions to make to a shared reproductive system. That means we have different levels of the same hormones. But when you think about the fact that, you know, two out of three suicides are male, 95% of the prison population is male, you know, this can't all be testosterone. And I think it's quite, it seems to me quite likely, and this is entirely, again, I stress based on my own experience, that this stuff plays a part and that violence tends to happen when people run out of words and self-harm tends to happen when people can't talk about their problems or can't ask for help and I think all of the messages I was getting as a boy about man up be a man stop crying mean that we are very we haven't developed those skills to be your own emotional detective and to work out why you're feeling the thing that you're feeling when my mother died people were saying you know if i was very lucky to be surrounded by people saying the thing that they thought they probably ought to say at this point which was you know if you need to talk then just talk and if you don't talk then maybe that's something we can talk about and just talk and i was like okay well i was grateful for the kindness but on the other hand okay well this is new suddenly i'm talking now am i because that where did that come from because all i've been hearing is you know, if you're feeling grief or pain or uncertainty or embarrassment or shame, what you do with that emotion is you ignore it, shrug it off, bottle it up, pretend it's not happening, and if it comes out at all, let it come out as anger because as a boy and a man, it's acceptable. Yeah, to you propose angry. a
0: very good drinking game in the book. <laughs> yeah, i
1: I say yes, you can have a, a drink of a real man's drink like uh, Snake Bite and Black. I'd just been talking about my teenage years. Every time you see a, a male um, turning uh, an unwanted emotion into anger. And that's sort of what happens. So I, I just think it, it leaves you unprepared for adversity. And in the second half of the book, I, I talk about how it leaves you unprepared for love, basically, doing the, the work of love and looking after a relationship and not always relying on, assuming it's a heterosexual relationship, not always relying on the woman to be the one who goes, we've got a problem here, do you want to talk about it? It feels to me like, you know, you've, you haven't made it as a man, unless you don't know how to answer the question, what's the matter? You know, my, my wife says to me, what's the matter? I, I experience that as a challenge to my pride. It's like I've let the side down because I've let someone notice that I'm upset. And so nothing, nothing's the matter. Why does everything have to be about something? I mean, usually it is about something, you know. I'm not, I'm not getting this angry because I've lost my car keys. I'm getting this angry because I've lost my car keys and I've just noticed it's the anniversary of my father's death or whatever. There's, there's always something.
0: Yeah. You also, I mean, you complicate that a little because there's a... You know, you said heterosexual relationships. You've also got at least two instances of where you've had in your teenage years this very sort of, you know, you've fallen in love with a male best friend. Yeah. And then you've seen them go and run off and fall in love with the girl you also fancy. Yes, that is and one of the
1: perils of bisexuality. If you if, you're, <laughs> if you if you fancy two people at the same time and then they go out with each other, that's just super. <laughs> exactly. Uh, yes, no, there was a gay part of my sexuality when I was, I don't know, a teenager up until, oh, I don't know, 23, 24. It didn't really survive that that early relationship with the person I call Will. He wasn't the only one, but then after that, it sort of petered out. I blame Peter. Uh, no there was no Peter but yeah but then it's kind of you know I think you know it's a I think these things are probably more common than we than we imagine but we don't particularly well, talk the about importance it, so it, of homophobia? <laughs> yeah the sovereign importance of homophobia you know does its work and leaves a leaves a mark I call it the uh, you know it's a lurking bigotry in the book I call it the farage and the garage
0: or the Farage in the Garage. Or the Farage
1: in the Garage, as I would have pronounced it at the time.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, that, I mean, that does open up another thing that seems to me to go through the book slightly is that, you know, it's how much these ideas and performances of masculinity are bound up with class. Because, you know, oh, you've, you talk yeah, about having moved from one class to another, you've changed your accent, you know, you stayed behind at school a year in order to go to Cambridge, yep. and then found yourself surrounded by these very yeah. confident and <laughs> yes. frightening toffs. That's right. <laughs>
1: Yes, no, I was at Robinson, Cambridge. It was one of the less formal colleges. But still, I remember the matriculation day and having the photo and you're wearing this gown and my one and only suit, which was a hand-me-down from my, from my grandfather and then being accosted by the choice between sweet or dry sherry. I'd never tasted sherry before and I went for the dry one because I assumed that was the sophisticated choice. And it was like a mouthful of paraffin. And now I'm, kind, now I'm kind of, you know, talking to people who say, and who is your father, Rob? Who who is my father? Um his name's Paul. Paul Paul Webb. Um no, can't help you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's like if I I had to apologize for, for not having a father anyone had heard yes, of. It was, the, the uh, Lincolnshire Webs. The Lincolnshire <laughs> Webs. Yes. There were many of them. No, but eventually I found um, a group of friends who uh, were not so terrifying. And then, you know, in you know doing footlights, the you know Cambridge has this comedy club called the Cambridge Footlights and they and they were largely independent school educated as well, and their parents were graduates, of course, and uh, largely, you know, lots of writers and teachers that were their parents. But there again, because there was a shared interest in comedy and acting and writing, that the class stuff didn't really matter that much at all.
0: And it was at Footlights, I think I'm right in saying that you met. D- Mitchell, David Mitchell, your comedy yeah. partner. And, yeah. I mean, due to your relationship with him, I mean, you know, you go forward to Peep Show or something, and that seems to me to be a, something that is really profoundly about, you know, certain sorts of masculinity yeah. and male relationships and yeah. you know, male inadequacies. Absolutely. So, there's kind of quite knowing interrogation of this material before you were writing this book. But was it something you were kind of working through consciously?
1: Well, the first thing to say is Peep Show is not written by me and David, it's written by Sam Bain and Jesse Armstrong, so it's I can't take, sadly I can't take credit for that aspect of it, but it all seemed to make sense. I don't know how, I don't think I was very conscious of what I was doing, I mean the the way the book works, we sort of leave me at the end of university and there's a huge fast forward to um, me just sort of starting to make it with David as writers, sort of 2001-ish. And no, because I talk at that point about having a, a girlfriend called Jenna Who's a very nice person But, but again, we sort of, I talk about how I just wasn't keeping an eye on things And the great alibi, of course, was that I bought Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus Which I, I immediately felt very pleased with myself For reading a popular book about relationships But the, the trouble with popular books about relationships Is that they're all wrong because they start from this premise of difference, that men are so culturally and psychologically different from women, they might as well be considered uh, for two different species from two different planets. And, and if, if you start there, you give yourself permission to indulge every stereotype you've ever heard about men and women. He's not, Grey is not interested in where these differences come from he's interested in reinforcing them and excusing them and letting everybody off the hook. So I completely fell for that because it was extremely convenient. What you do if you're a man in, uh, if you're from Mars is that you listen to the Venusian talking about how the relationship is moribund these days and but if you try to solve the problem then you're just being a typical male you mustn't try to solve the problem. You just listen and that's now the maximum requirement and then you go back to doing whatever it is you want to do in your cave. Uh, whether it's your shed or your games console or, or whatever absolute nonsense but the kind of nonsense that sells 50 million copies
0: yeah i mean how much do you think because you know people have i mean, i suppose the the defense of a book like that might be right all of these things could be socially constructed but we've got to make an accommodation with the facts on the ground True. and we can't you know rewire the whole of humanity at once and then no we'll, i mean do you by that argument all abs- is that an excuse i have
1: absolutely no faith that my book is going to change anything whatsoever. <laughs> you know human beings you know you read a thing i do it myself i read a really fantastic book and i think oh this has completely revolutionized my thought about oh i might make a cup of tea what was that yeah we're... and it's <laughs> you know and this is why you know you can watch soap operas and ian Beale has been in eastenders has been married about six times and it's not that surprising because that's what human beings are that's what soaps are quite good at reflecting, that that people make the same mistakes again and again and again. If I'm doing anything, apart from trying to entertain the reader, I'm at pains to stress that it's a funny book, as well as It is Sam, a funny book and as well as doing the other things. Then I suppose I'm interested in making this conversation slightly less niche and slightly less weird and slightly less peculiar to have. Just give it a bit of a nudge into the mainstream that's you know if i can do that for a few months then then that's probably a good thing because i think you know telling boys and girls because of the accident of your chromosomes, this is what your personality is like and this, this, this is your role in life and, you know, you guys over there, you're going to be assertive and noisy and uh, you're going to be engineers and you guys over here, you're going to be caring and nurturing and intuitive. You can multitask, which, is, again, is pretty convenient for the rest of us and, you know, I, I just think it's a load of nonsense and given, you know, the sexism in society that affects women and the, the level of mental health issues among men I think it's to tell your children about this and to teach them about it and to get them to name it when they see it is not meddling with nature. It's a straightforward duty of care.
0: A striking thing is that you are, you know, you've sort of taken on board quite early on in this book, you know, from your childhood through adolescence through teenage, you know, you're reacting against that specific masculinity. Mm. You say, I mean, it's a very interesting last chapter where you kind of go, right, I'm on television making, you know, comedy sketches taking the piss out of this sort of masculinity. I'm, you know, I'm on Twitter fighting against men's rights activists, <laughs> left, right and centre, and, you know, being right on and yeah, liberal yeah. and, yeah. you know, North London latte sitting yeah. Jesse, like myself. But then you suddenly noticed, yeah. you know, while you're married and you've got young children, actually.
1: I am actually just this bloke. Yeah, no, exactly. I started a family and I freaked out, basically, because, you know, what do I remember about houses with small children in? Well, let's not go there. And what do I remember about mothers and what they do eventually is, OK, well, let's not think about that too hard either. And, you know, I sort of didn't trust myself to be the kind of father that I and, and indeed partner that I wanted to be. I freaked out. I started drinking a bit more heavily than I have been doing. I said yes to every single job coming, uh, anything to get out of the house yeah, like, as, as you say I say in the book, oh yeah because I'm this right on person, labour voting that, You know, I can't possibly be sexist, I'm, I've got all of the dad antibodies because I've seen what that's like and it sucks and so that, that can't possibly happen to me and then I just realised fairly gradually, and Abby, my wife, <laughs> you, can, you can believe, helped me uh, realise it, that I was just this, uh, you know, abrasive northern male with an overdeveloped sense of adventure who drank too much and took his wife for granted. I'd just done it again. You know, it, instead of making up my own version of how to be a husband and father, I'd let the original model reassert itself, and the original model was no beauty. It was, was, that.
0: There, was there a kind of crisis that caused you to turn it round?
1: no i wouldn't call it a crisis i think it's an ongoing thing i'm still not there but i sort of say in the book the parcel is the political and that you know and making a contribution to all of that unpaid and relentless domestic labor that traditionally women are expected or expect of themselves even to do to edge towards being a 50-50 contributor to that is important because it, this stuff gets Gets laughed about. I mean, they're not laughing about it on Woman's Hour. I, mean, I mentioned <laughs> it to Jane Garvey, and she said, "No, we don't. We don't think it's a joke." <laughs> and you know, it's it's important this stuff. And you know, who takes the time off work when the kids are ill, and who's thinking about their dentist appointments, and who's all of that mental load. You know, you've. I, I'm trying to. I'm trying and failing, but failing better, hopefully, uh, stepping up and doing that properly.
0: And that, how important is? Alcohol, do you think, to the maintain maintenance of masculinity? Because they, you know, it does become, you know, you talk. It does much cr- about being on the edge of.
1: Yeah, it does crop up a fair bit in the book. I try to describe exactly what I was doing. You know, I wasn't, uh, I wasn't fall down drunk. I wasn't violent. I didn't have to get up in the middle of the night and do a leaving Las Vegas with a bottle of vodka. It was never that. Bad. On the other hand, no, I didn't go to AA and I haven't seen a doctor about it. So, you know, you could be listening to an addict trying to rationalise it to himself or you could be listening to someone who actually wasn't that bad but I, I realised it was, it was getting in the way. You know, there was no conversation Abby had with me that she didn't have to have twice and just generally being a bit slow and a bit chippy and just you know we've met this guy we've met this woman a bore a tedious person who is just a bit slurry and a bit not there some of the time most days and that was too much far too much
0: you you mentioned just before we we started recording you did something for channel 4 news that sort of has gone completely bananas what i mean there is this sort of polarization on you know twitter and social media mm. now that as these conversations are coming out you know we've had sort of you know a sort of resurgence in awareness of feminism with people like Catelyn Moran you know big bestsellers a couple of years ago yeah. but I'm interested in how you see that do you think that was kind of obviously a step forward in some ways as you'd see it but there does seem to be something weird going on a sort of identitarian polarization at the moment
1: yes I mean it it, it was peculiar I, I did that I did an interview with Christian Murthy and they they put two clips out that are sort of two minutes each and I think they've had seven or eight million views now it's um, which is which is great, although, you know, I'd much rather the people re- reviewing the book rather than reviewing my conversation with with the news. But, yes, I had a little bit of uh, quite, uh, quite warm feedback from your Meninists and your MRAs. And, you know, what can I tell you? An attack on sexism is taken quite personally by some men and, you know, go figure but, you know, they're they're right I'm fairly polite to them in the book you know, I say that they are
0: Yeah, I apologise everybody for the that's clanging not me. and I'm, banging. Not, I'm that's... not actually trying to repair
1: the office while no, I speak No, that's men's rights to show, outside <laughs> <laughs> You know, they're right to talk about the high suicide rates they're right to talk about how men die younger they're right to say that the way our frontline troops are treated when they come home is a national disgrace all of this is right And then they just do this incredible 180-degree thing and blame the whole thing on feminism, a word which they use almost interchangeably with women. And it feels like, you know, I did this interview and I succeeded in making a bunch of very angry men much angrier. And I think now that the publicity will die down, they'll just settle at a sort of default level of livid. But, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know what to do with them.
0: How do you think this thing's going to shake out? I mean, do you think that sort of angry reaction is effectively the you know last redoubt of a sort of dying notion of masculinity, or do you think that's I, actually what we're just going to see as a very polarised sexual politics?
1: I don't know, and I wouldn't like to try to guess. I'm not really qualified to do that, but certainly you get the strong impression from them that they feel that they are under siege, that they feel that they're, you know, these unearned privileges that are slowly that they're slowly losing. Very, very Flipping slowly though I mean You know I'm a bloke I'm not going to be My driving isn't going to be judged On the colour of my hair You know We've had 76 Prime Ministers Since Sir Robert Walpole 74 of them were blokes It's not It's not You know We're not Just because Catelyn Brings a book out It's not suddenly all marvellous And Grayson Perry Has done a documentary Oh that's it then You know This is a very It's a very slow process And um, you know I'm no wig I I don't think there's anything Inevitable about About it improving
0: Well on that Happy (laughs) (laughs) note. Robert Webb, thank you very much indeed for your time.
1: Thank you, sir.